Men, you may be seated. If you would join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to back to the book of Nehemiah, as we have been in this for a few weeks now. And this morning we are in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Last week, last Lord's Day, we concluded chapter 1, and really what we saw in chapter 1 is, in a sense, an introduction uh, to several things. First, to to who Nehemiah is. Uh, We saw that he is a uh, a Jew, a faithful Jew, uh, who was a part of exile some hundred years before, hundred plus years before, uh, from Jerusalem out in exile. And he's a cupbearer to the king. He has risen up in rank to his very trusted position with the king. But Nehemiah is a faithful Jew. He's a faithful Christian. And we see that faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to prayer. He's received this bad news uh, that Jerusalem, as the exiles are, are starting to go back, they're bringing back these reports that uh, the, the Jerusalem still, the city is not in great shape, but especially the wall is still in disrepair. And that's not good. You need a wall to protect your city. And Nehemiah, who is a man of action, his first response was prayerfulness. For three to five months, he he dedicates himself to prayer. He doesn't put together a checklist. He doesn't grab the shovel. He doesn't go down to Winsboro Builder Supplies and starts getting all the supplies needed. No, he devotes himself first to prayer. And then we see how he prays. And it's this model prayer, not that it's a perfect prayer, but it provides us a good template of prayer. Because it's a prayer that's first and foremost about God, and then about Nehemiah. And we think about like a funnel. At the top, at the most, is prayerfulness about God. Adoration, thankfulness, confession of sins. And then we get down to what we want. And even as we look at the Lord's Prayer, that's the shape of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? That's the shape of all model prayers. It's the shape of a funnel. It's first and foremost about God. And so when we pray in that way, it puts everything else into its proper perspective. That brings us to chapter 2. That brings us further into Nehemiah's story as we'll look at this morning through the first eight verses. So if you will join me now as we pray, then we will read God's word together and go through it together. But let's pray. Father, we, we come to you as we have seen with Nehemiah. We should be prayerful. That is a, an aspect of our faith. We've had moments of prayer this morning, but we also want to make sure we have this moment of prayer. We come to you as we come to the most important part of our service. The reading of your word. And the explaining of your word. The understanding of your word. And this is a time where it's easy for our eyes to grow heavy. For our attention to get diverted somewhere else our stomachs to start grumbling and rumbling because we're smelling the good food coming up from upstairs. But, oh Lord, we need your spirit now to keep us on the task at hand. You are speaking to us through your word. May we hang on to every word. May we be challenged in those areas of our lives. We need to be challenged. May we be comforted where we need that balm of comfort. May we hear Christ in all of this. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Join me now in standing for the reading of God's word. In the month of Nisan, 
in the 20th year a king of King Artaxes. When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will, you, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given, to, be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. In my hometown of Sumter, as you drive down Broad Street, there's a mall. I know many of you have been through Sumter your way to different sporting events. You've gone down Broad Street. You've driven by what was known as growing up Jasmine Mall. They now changed the name to Sumter Mall for other reasons. But growing up, it was Jasmine Mall. And right in the middle of the mall was this big water fountain, you know, water spurting out of it. So you come in through the big front doors, and right there in front of you is the big water fountain. And so growing up, it was popular, it was customary, and whenever you went to the mall, you would beg your parents for some change, for loose coins. Why? So you could take the coins and flip them into the water and make a wish as the coin was slipping in the air. The little kid would go in, certain that this worked. Mom, Dad, give us change. And they didn't have a penny or a nickel we wouldn't get anything. They weren't, they weren't going to spend a dime or a quarter on our wishes, right? It's just only worth a penny or even a nickel. They're so young, we were certain. So we go up and we flip in the coin. We wish for that your new bike, our new puppy, or for your younger brother to go away because he's making your life miserable. But as you get older, he may still do it, but that certainty isn't there anymore, is it? kind of realize that flipping a coin into a fountain is just that, isn't it? Because I never really got that new bike or a puppy. My brother's still alive. It's still bothering me. But we still do it. You may still find yourself tempted when you see a fountain to go dig for loose change. And even with that uncertainty, you go and you flip that coin into the water and you make a wish. And I wonder... And that runs parallel to how we could describe how many Christians approach prayer. It's like approaching a fountain with a penny in hand and a wish in mind. When we bow our heads to God in prayer, that we're doing it with some level of uncertainty. 
They were thinking, you know, it, it's worth the shot, right? Because it's what Christians do. And we've seen sometimes God's answered my prayers. Sometimes he's answered other prayers. But there's just this level of uncertainty. But, but it's, it's worth a shot. And I think if we're truly honest with ourselves, let me ask it this way. If we are truly honest with ourselves, what is our level of confidence when we do pray? Let's put it on a scale of 1 to 10. When you go to God in prayer, on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you, A, that God will hear your prayers, and B, that God will answer your prayers? Not answer them how you want them, but, but just some sort of answer. What is, your, what is your level of confidence? On a scale of 1 to 10, where are you in your confidence of prayer? My guess would be, we're probably somewhere in the middle. On bad days, we're a 4. Most days we're somewhere between five and six. If we're in a good mood, we slept well, had a good breakfast, children aren't aggravating us, we haven't gotten a fight with our spouse, people get out of the left lane and let you go fast to work. Right? If you have a good day like that, then maybe it's upwards of a seven or eight, but we probably find ourselves somewhere around a four or five or six. We're pretty sure God answers our prayers, right? Why, why else will we pray? We're just not too confident that God will answer our prayers. We'll do it. We're just not confident in the outcome. So maybe we find that our confidence in prayer may just be a step or two above digging into our pockets, finding a penny, flipping it to a fountain, and making a wish. But as we have seen with Nehemiah, as a model, especially for as Christians, we should have the utmost confidence that God hears our prayers. We should have the utmost confidence that he hears our prayers and that he will answer our prayers. That we have seen Nehemiah's confidence in this already in chapter 1, as we've already talked about, that he devotes himself to prayer for somewhere between three to five months. Three to five months he has devoted himself to daily prayer, maybe two to three times a day. And that takes confidence in God to do that, wouldn't it? If Nehemiah didn't have the confidence that God was going to either hear his prayer or answer it, then why waste all that time in prayer? We can understand that if he would just kind of shoot out a prayer here and there, but every day for three to five months, at least once a day, maybe two or three times a day, that takes a lot of confidence, right? If he didn't think God was going to do it, why waste the time? He could have found a hobby. He could have gone hiking. He could have learned how to play guitar, right? He could have started making rocking chairs, right? He could have done something. Yet we find that Nehemiah has all the confidence that his faith can muster. And what can his faith muster? For three to five months, daily prayer, sometimes two to three times a day. And he prays this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. That sounds very confident, doesn't it? It's not like that tentative, you know, knock at the door and, God, don't know if you're there. Don't know if you're busy. I don't know if you're listening. I'm going to try it out anyways. There's a lot of confidence in the prayer. Confidence that God will hear and confidence that God will answer. 
And I think that begs the question, where does that confidence come from? This is a man who's living in exile. He is a Jew living away from his home. He's a Jew living away from the promised land. He's a Jew who has never seen the temple. Where does this confidence come from? It comes from faith. Actually, more precisely, it's faith in who God is and in his promises. And like we said, Nehemiah is faithful because he's been raised in the faith. His parents, his aunts and uncles, and the neighbors, the community, and others were faithful in teaching Jeremiah about the Bible, appointing him to God, and part of his upbringing was about prayer. He heard the stories of how God's people prayed and God answered the prayers of his people. And I think we can very safely assume that Nehemiah had prayed before this time and that God had answered those prayers. Because Nehemiah was faithful and because he had seen God answer these prayers, he prayed. Every day for three to five months, most likely, more like, or most likely, more than one time a day, he prayed. Because prayer is an act of faith, isn't it? But it's not an act of faith of flipping a coin into a fountain and hoping and wishing. Prayer is an act of faith in that we can only truly pray when we have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he has been offered in the Gospels. When we come to Christ, when we become a Christian, there are numerous, numerous blessings that come with it. And one of those blessings is prayer. We know we need to pray. We know we should pray. And so we start to. But we can only do that when this is our position in and with Christ. It is through faith. That's why when we go to the book of James and he tells us that we are when we pray in doubt, when we pray from that lack of faith, then our prayers are, are, are like those waves of the seas in the midst of a storm that are tossed here and there. So we pray in faith. We pray in faith that we have been saved from our sins by Jesus. We pray in faith that God will always hear our prayers. We will pray in faith that God will always answer our prayers because we are now in Christ. So praying in faith isn't hopefulness. Praying in, Christ, praying in faith is certainty. That because you are now God's, because you are now in Christ through faith in Him alone, that God will always hear and answer your prayers. That's the faithfulness of praying we see here in Nehemiah. And so we see in chapter 2 that God is beginning to answer Nehemiah's prayer concerning the condition of Jerusalem, uh, but, but specifically the walls surrounding the city. Now back up with me several weeks ago, and we said in the first summer, our introduction to this, that there are some historical events that are taking place around this that we will need to touch upon to help us understand Nehemiah's story. And if you remember, we said in the Hebrew Bible that Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Hebrew Bible because they are telling the same story from two perspectives. They're telling it, through, they're telling it from the perspective of Ezra the priest and they're telling it through Nehemiah the government official. But what we see in the story is that Ezra had actually gone back with some exiles some 13 years before back to Jerusalem to teach the law 
to the return exiles who were there. Now, when some of the enemies of the Jews found out what was happening, they sent a letter to the king. And this letter alleged that if the Jews rebuilt Jerusalem, then they would rebel against the king. The letter says, look, you've been so good to these Jews. They're not very trustworthy people. And so we've heard you start sending them back to Jerusalem. And, oh, king, if you do that, they're going to get over there. They're going to take your money. They're going to take your resources. And then one day they're going to rebel against you. There's no truthfulness to it. Just lies of the enemy. Now, the king was favorably disposed to the Jews, and he wanted them to follow the dictates of the religion. However, because of those letters, he ordered that the Jews not rebuild the city until he said otherwise. Why is this important? Because it means that the very king that Nehemiah is going to go to is in some main way responsible for how sorry of a state Jerusalem is in. The king that Nehemiah needs to go plead to is the one who has put off the rebuilding of the city. So this is a delicate situation for Nehemiah. Due to the restriction and allegations against the Jews, Nehemiah has to approach the king carefully with his requests. He can't go to the king and say, listen here, man, this is mostly your fault. Right? You're responsible for this. And dude, you've got to do something about it. He can't handle it that way. There has to be more tact and wisdom. And thankfully, we see that Nehemiah shows this tact and wisdom. As he, as he addresses the king, he always first shows his loyalty to the king. Loyalty to the king right? He's saying, I'm not going to subvert you. I'm not, I'm not trying to do things. I'm, I'm loyal to you. But how does he explain the situation? He, he, he explains it through personal grief. He doesn't make it political. He emphasizes the personal. Why? Because I believe through Nehemiah's prayerfulness, he's begun to realize how much the king trusts him and depends upon him. So he knows he can go to the king and give the personal first. Now I think this is a reminder that we don't always need to be sledgehammers. Sometimes some of our personalities are, are that we're sledgehammers, right? There's a fly on the wall, go get a sledgehammer. Right? There's a clog in the sink, go get a sledgehammer. Got a flat tire, get a sledgehammer. But some of us have those, those personalities, we're just sledgehammers. And so we go into every situation as a sledgehammer. Does it always work? No. So it's, it's a good reminder to us, we don't always need to be sledgehammers. There are times when tact and care can do far more than just being a bull in a china shop. So we need to seek that tact and that wisdom. We see that Nehemiah has done this. We see some other things here from Nehemiah's prayer as well. Again, as, we, as we've said, Nehemiah's been praying this for several months. But now he's come to a time where he decides to go before the king. I'm going to read it for us again. This is how Nehemiah closed his prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
As we said before, look at this prayer. We, we believe this isn't one precise prayer. This, this is a representation of how Nehemiah prayed. This adoration of God, this confession of sin, this thankfulness, and then supplication. This is a model of his prayer, representation of his prayer over three to five months. However, this last part seems to be very time-specific. That Nehemiah woke up that morning and he said, Lord, I'm going to do this today. Now, we believe this was probably a prompting by the Spirit of God. Nehemiah didn't put a time limit on his prayer. God, I'm going to give you five months. If you don't do anything about it, I'm going to take care of it then. That's a very foolish thing to do, by the way. But believe, prompting by the Spirit, he realized today is the day. His alarm goes off, 7 a.m., the radio comes on, traffic conditions in the city, chariot wreck over here on 1st and Main, so you know, so avoid going that way. Here are the market prices for uh, whatever they sell in the market there. He gets up, he gets ready, he prays, and he realizes today is the day that he goes before the king. And this physically affects Nehemiah. Because we see that in it, he goes before the king and the king says to him, why are you sad? I can tell you're not sick. I can tell you don't have the Rona because you're not coughing. I can tell you're not sick. This is, this is sadness from the heart. Now Nehemiah is quick to tell us, this isn't usual. He says, I have not been sad in the king's presence. Now, he's been around around long enough to know that the king wants happy servants, not depressed servants, right? Somebody bringing you, you know, your wine, you don't want them down in the mouth, you want, you know, some smile on their face. Yet the enormity of the situation is weighing on Nehemiah. He can't keep a poker face. So it's obvious to the king that something is wrong. This is the first part of the situation. Second part of the situation, this meal seems unusual, because who's the only people named in this? It's the king and the queen. It's a personal, private affair. This is just a, a meal between the king and the queen. Which means that the king could be more vulnerable and open to his servant, Nehemiah. He's not, he's not trying to impress the dignitaries and the ambassadors and the representatives and the emissaries. He's not trying to schmooze them. Right? His attention isn't on them. No, it's just the king and the queen. Maybe they're even wearing like their old ratty bath robes and her hairs and rollers and they got their feet in their slippers, right? But it's the perfect situation. Here's Nehemiah, known and trusted by the king, and he is about to break under the weight of his desires, and the king is in a situation where he can be more willing to hear and listen. Then we add on another aspect and that is, uh, historical experts tell us that it was unusual for kings at that time to be alone with their queen in this sort of situation. Either they were entertaining guests or they were dining alone. But here he is with his queen. And Nehemiah makes sure to mention that. Why? It really comes out probably one or two reasons. Either the king leans upon his wife for support, or maybe more likely, Nehemiah had found favor with the queen. 
And so as, as he's making his request, the king or the queen is elbowing the king under the table. You need to listen to Nehemiah. If you want some hugs and kisses later, you better be listening to this man right now. Whatever way we look at it, it's one of the best situations that Nehemiah could ask for. And it's a reminder. We've seen this in our hymns. We, we know this on some level. But it's a reminder that God moves in mysterious ways. And in this, God can answer our prayers in mysterious ways. Because when Nehemiah started praying, did you think this is how he envisioned it happening? Maybe, but probably not, because this is almost like a perfect storm of a situation. Maybe he really had no idea what to expect. His expectations were simply that God would hear his prayer and answer it. And here is God answering the prayer in a very mysterious way. The king and queen alone, vulnerable, him not being able to have a poker face, the queen being favorable to him. God has opened the door to Nehemiah in such a particular way that Nehemiah has to know this is from God. See, when we pray in faith, we are to expect God to answer our prayers, but sometimes God answers our prayers in mysterious ways. And I think many of us have a testimony to that. That we pray to God about something. And not only did he answer it, but he answered it in a way that we could never expect. He answered it in a way that only he could. I'm going to say this, and I, I know I may step on some toes, but just stay with me. We have these sayings in our, in our Christianity. And one of them is, well, that was a God thing. Here's the thing about saying, everything is a God thing. Right? That's, that's part of the hope of our, uh, of our salvation. Right? That, that's what we believe in sovereignty. Everything is a God thing. But there are times where God works in such a particular way, we can't ignore it. Or we can't say, hmm, maybe that was just chaos. Maybe that's just coincidence. No, we find there's times where God answers our prayers and we are confronted with the fact that God has answered my prayer. Nehemiah was confronted with the fact that God has answered my prayer. He prompted me today and today, here's this unusual situation. I can't hide my, I can't have my face. I think the queen is nudging him under the table. This is the situation. God can move in mysterious ways even in answering our prayers. But he moves in mysterious ways so we are to recognize that he is at work and he is answering our prayers. So Nehemiah tells the king why he's sad. Let the king live forever, right? He's buttering up the king. Let, let you live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He really puts it, he really puts it out there, doesn't he? Right, here it is, king. You want to know what's wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong. My ancestral home, my ancestors, where my ancestors are buried, it lies in ruins. Why shouldn't I be sad? As we said earlier, this is partly the king's fault. And so there's very much that implication here. The king knows that. And that's why Nehemiah says he's scared. Because he knows he's going to put it out there. 
And he knows what can happen. The king can fire him. He's got a cushy job. He can kick Nehemiah to the curb and, and he can have a lower job. He could put him in prison. He could kill him. Off with your head. It's one of the situations that Nehemiah knows can end very poorly. But it doesn't. Puts it out there. Here's what's wrong, king. And what's the king say to him? What are you requesting? The door has been opened. What Nehemiah has prayed for is now being answered. Imagine if you're in Nehemiah's shoes. What would you do next? I'll speak for myself. If I was Nehemiah, I would start rambling. Okay, here. Thank goodness. I thought you were going to kill me, but you're not. Okay, good. So here's one thing. I need a bunch of shovels, and I need bricks. I need a blah, blah, blah. You start rambling. All these details, all these requests. What's Nehemiah do? So I pray to the God of heaven. Waves of relief are washing over him. The door is wide open for him to make his request. And Nehemiah prays. Before he says anything else, he prays. Now, obviously, this is a brief prayer. (laughs) He doesn't say to the king, all right, I wasn't expecting that. Here's some more wine. Give me about 10, 15 minutes, and and I'll be right back. Now, this is a prayer to blink of an eye. As long as it is for him to take his next breath. Oh, God, help me. God, give me grace. God, I need you right now. Give me wisdom. But Nehemiah's prayerfulness doesn't end at the answer. It continues. And how many times does our prayers end when we think it's been answered? It's like we go through the drive-thru line Chick-fil-A. They ask for your order. You ask for a number one, pepper jack cheese, a lemonade, and a frosted lemonade to go on the side. You go to the window, you hand them your money, they hand you your bag, and you say thank you, and they say to you, my pleasure. And you drive off, and you're done. You're done with Chick-fil-A. You got your food, the transaction's over with. How many times do we treat our answered prayers that way? God's answered, we're done, moving on. But not for Nehemiah. And it should be for us. Paul tells us that we are to pray at all times. We are to pray without ceasing. Even when God is answering our prayers, we still need his wisdom and guidance. Even when God is answering our prayers, we still need him. The faith that God had entrusted to Nehemiah have built up this instinct of prayer. We need to understand, that doesn't just happen. We have to exercise that muscle of prayer so it can grow and it can develop. So like Nehemiah, in whatever situation we're in, we have this instinct of prayer because we have faith that God will hear and answer. So we are prayerful. So in the midst of God answering his prayer, Nehemiah makes makes a prayer and then makes his request. And it's quite the request. He's asking for a considerable amount of time away from the king. He's asking for his letters to government officials for safe passage. He wants access to the king's forest for all the timber needs, even including building a house for himself. And the king says yes to it all. Whatever you want, Nehemiah, I give it to you. But did did you pick up on why Nehemiah said the king did this. Look at the last verse, verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. 
for the good hand of my God was upon me. Those are eyes of faith, aren't they? Here's Nehemiah, probably still trembling some in front of the king. He's made his request, and he hears that the king has granted it all. And yet Nehemiah is able to see the forest. He's able to see all of it, and he knows it's the good hand of God, which was obviously upon him in this situation. Not only God, not only has God answered his prayer in a mysterious way, but he's answered with his good hand was obviously on it all. We need to keep in mind, this entire request goes against everything the king had been doing with respect to Jerusalem for years, for 13 years. There is nothing there that would have suggested to Nehemiah that this was likely to occur. Yet it did. And the king did a 180 on his policies of Jerusalem. We never see a politician doing a 180 until it gets to election year and it's a month or two out. Then they'll 180 any direction to get reelected, right? But this isn't a re-election year. The king has done a 180. Why? Because of God's good hand. And God's good hand is the hand of a sovereign God. That's why we see in Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Don't you love the thought of that? The picture of that. King's heart is just like a trickle, a stream of water in the hand of God. He can turn it whatever direction. If God can change the heart of the king, he can change the heart of anyone. He's over any and every situation. The good hand of God is the good hand of the sovereign God, but it's also the good hand because it's the good hand of the good God. Remember, God is good by nature. Everything God does is good. But there are times of special goodness. There are times where God... As divine interruption in the course of things, interruption designed to bring us blessing and to further his kingdom. God has answered Nehemiah's sustained prayer. He's answered the, the, the short prayer. That the earthly king had been good to Nehemiah, but the reason he had been good is in the fact that God is the good God and had directed his hand, his heart in that way. So the sovereign God is also the good hand of God. And of course, we can only know that goodness of God when we find it in its fullness in Jesus Christ. How good is God? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. See, we need to only look to Jesus to be reminded of the goodness of God. That it was in his sovereignty and goodness that God has given us Jesus. And this is where our confidence in prayer is rooted. We confess every week, where is Jesus in the Apostles' Creed? Now stands at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? He's staying there as mediator, and part of his role as mediator is he's praying for us. Where does our confidence come in? That the good God has his Son, our Lord and Savior, at his right hand, praying for us. That when we pray... The Spirit takes our prayers and he presents them to Jesus. And Jesus takes that coal of our prayer and he brings out the diamond of it. 
That's the goodness of God. It's that the whole Trinity is involved in our prayers, involved through Jesus Christ. This is why we pray. This is why we have confidence in prayer. This is why we build up the muscle of prayer. This is why we see God's good hand in answering prayer. It's all because of Jesus. That when we have faith in him, we are able to pray. And through that faith, we're able to see how God is answering our prayers. And we can have that confidence in our prayers. And we can continue to pray. So that through Jesus, we can be like Nehemiah. Always prayerful. Always faithful to pray, knowing that God will answer. Sometimes in plain ways, sometimes in mysterious ways. And his goodness will always be known in his answer. But we can only be prayerful in that way in and through Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus are we only able to pray in this way. Pray with me now.